Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. Today's guest is yours truly. That's right. It's the first ever solo episode of Synaxis. Sorry, this episode's coming out a little late this week. It's due in part to the Memorial Day holiday and in part to some power failures due to inclement weather, but I hope it's still useful. And so away we go. Our first reading is Acts 16, verses 16 through 34. Here we have Paul having already entered Europe previously in the chapter and meeting Lydia, still finds himself in Philippi. He, Silas, and Timothy visit the Jewish community, which seems to meet by the river, I guess like Chris Farley, down by the river, perhaps an outdoor place of prayer or some sort of worship site. Just as Jesus exercised evil spirits during his earthly ministry, we have Paul doing an exorcism, ridding a slave girl of a demon. And interestingly, Paul seems to kick the demon out of this slave girl because the demon is testifying to who he is and what's going on. This happens sometimes in the ministry of Jesus, if you'll remember. And so, yeah, it's a pretty interesting story. One of the first things that jumps out at you when you read it is that this woman who is possessed by this spirit of divination and who is enslaved to this couple who seemingly use her predictive powers or perceived predictive powers to earn some extra income. She stands in marked contrast to Lydia, who is encountered earlier in the chapter, who was the first person Paul really connected with in Philippi and who had been praying to the God of Israel. Lydia is a free woman and apparently had a somewhat successful business and was a person of some means. This woman, young woman, is not a person of means and is being exploited. And each day as Paul and Silas pass her by, she names them as slaves, also as slaves of the Most High God, and as proclaimers of a way of salvation. Now, this happens, it seems, day after day, and it's seemingly annoying Paul here. (laughs) And why he's irritated, the text doesn't tell us. Certainly the girl's not bearing false witness. The girl is not saying something that's not true. I don't know if Paul is just losing his patience. I don't know if he's not good with peanut galleries or something like that. Or he just wants to be in charge of how his own teaching is perceived and how it's received. But after some annoyance, not out of compassion, it seems, out of some annoyance, he does cast the spirit out of her, which then leads to trouble for Paul and Silas. The couple is now denied some supplemental income or maybe primary. I'm guessing it's not primary income. I'm guessing this slave girl with her spirit of divination isn't their sole source of income, but she's a source of income nonetheless, enough that the owners have Paul and Silas seized. They're brought down to the marketplace at the city center and before the authorities. And this action, as could be expected in this ancient 
Mediterranean context draws a bit of a crowd. And what's interesting is that the owners don't say that, hey, the sky or these guys deprived us of our income from this slave girl's marvelous divinizing powers that dazzled the crowd and earned revenue for them. But they said that these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They're, they're agitators. They're stirring up the people or the, uh, you know, disturbing the peace. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So here, I don't know how much of the teachings of Paul and Silas they are aware of, but whatever they say, it's enough that the crowd is, is agitated, joins in attacking them, and the magistrate seems to give in to the, the anger, and they have them roughed up, and then they have them put in jail where they are to be kept safely. Which leads to the next interesting part of the story. They're put in stocks, our, t- our text says, and they're in the inner part of the prison. I don't know if that's like maximum security or what that means. But nevertheless, they're in this innermost part of the prison, and it's about midnight. They are singing hymns and praying. They're having their own little worship service celebration, I suppose. And there's an earthquake, and the bonds of everyone are loosed. I mean, I don't know how many people are there, but obviously Paul and Silas's chains are undone, or their their stocks or whatever. And the jailer wakes up and is terrified because he's afraid that escape means that, especially these people, uh, Paul and Silas, who the magistrate said are to be kept safe and kept under lock and key. He's afraid that their escape means his failure, which means, I guess, he'll be put to death or something, and he's about to commit suicide rather than face the music of his seeming failure. And then they cry out, no, don't do this. We're right here. We haven't left. And this jailer is astounded at that they're still there and interestingly asks them, what must I do to be saved? I mean, what a great lead-in for a preacher, right? You know, what do I have to do? Well, he tells them, he tells the jailer uh, what must be done. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and your household. And so when they said that, he took care of them, to uh, wash their wounds, and he was baptized. He and all his family, his whole household, and they, he takes them into his house and sets foods before them. And he rejoiced along with his household. There, you know, things seem hunky-dory. Everyone's believing. And when it's daytime, when it morning breaks, the magistrate sent the police and set, saying to let Paul and Silas go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrate have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul, interestingly, I mean, if I were Paul, I would have left at this point. But Paul says, No, they've beaten us uh, publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, have thrown us into prison. And now do they want to throw us out secretly? No, let them come and take themselves out. And this gets back to the magistrates and... When they heard they that they were Roman citizens, they apologized them because if you're a Roman citizen, you have certain legal rights. They thought, I guess, these are just itinerant Jewish preachers and we can do what we want. And the, so they were apologetic and they asked him to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited with Lydia, who I guess had become their contact on the ground. When they had seen the brothers and sisters in the this little fledgling community of faith, they encouraged them. And then they hit the road. Interesting story, Right. One of the things I think that's interesting to note about the story is that everyone seems enslaved. First, we have this slave girl who's enslaved both to this 
spirit of divination and to her owners, have the owners who are enslaved to their greed and to a system that enslaves and dehumanizes people like this young woman. You have the magistrates who seem to be enslaved to the crowd and to public opinion and sort of go along with what probably doesn't seem entirely just or reasonable to them in in this kangaroo kind of court. And we have the jailer who is enslaved to this legal system where if something, this act of God happens, you know, even if it is an earthquake or something, that his failure will mean his life being called to account. And Paul and Silas are enslaved too, but, you know, this is, the Dylan song comes to me, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Here they are enslaved, but to God revealed in and as Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that everyone's enslaved means that everyone seems to also need salvation. Not just the jailer, but everyone. The girl who is enslaved needs to be saved from her bonds and her bondage, and also from this terrible possession by this evil spirit. And the slave owners need to be saved from a system that makes them exploit other human beings and their idolatry that is willing to be swept up in a system like this for their own financial gain. The magistrates need to be saved from their bondage to the will of a a populace that can be pretty easily manipulated, although Paul does seem to get back at them to some degree. And the jailer needs to be saved. He's sort of a cog in the machine, and he makes him anxious to the point where he's willing to take his own life. And even Paul and Silas seem to be need to be saved from a too narrow view of who gets the gospel's invitation. Because it's really interesting. You know, you'll note that while Paul delivers the young woman who's enslaved from the possession by this divinizing spirit, he doesn't offer her salvation. He seems to be preaching to lots of people and and given the chance, bears witness to the magistrate, but doesn't preach the gospel to this young woman in bondage. That, you know, if, if the whole thrust of the book of Acts is the gospel going out to everyone, the whole gospel to the whole world, to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, why doesn't she get an invitation to belong to the Lord Jesus? The question about this young enslaved woman, I think, and and, and what happened to her invites a question to the hearers. Because obviously Paul and Silas, who are pioneers in the early Christian movement, people who are full of the power of the Spirit, still have unsanctified things in them. They're still missing the point. <laughs> they, they haven't arrived yet. And I think it, it, it poses an interesting question. Why is this young woman left out? Who am I leaving out? Who am I seeing as beyond the grace of God? Or who's not on my radar? To which I guess we should answer, gosh, if I could be a Christian, who couldn't be? Right? If, if the invitation went even to me, a sinner like me, who couldn't it go to? And who am I overlooking? Who are we overlooking? Just like even Paul and Silas overlooked this woman who was in bondage and freed, was freed from it, but not, it was freed from something, but not freed for faith in Jesus. Well, it may be the devil it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Preacher, preacher, spiritual pride. 
Our next passage is Revelation 22, starting with verse 12, ending with verse 21, although the lectionary omits verses 15, 18, and 19, presumably because they're offensive or something, but add them if you wish or at your own risk. But here we have John coming to the end of God's revelation to him. Jesus is speaking, identifying the risen Christ with God. He and God being identified with each other are both the beginning of creation and the end of it. And those who share with Jesus in being made white, that is free of sin by his sacrificial death, are blessed and will have union with him in the new heaven and new earth now and forever. Interesting text. One of the things that that I think immediately probably will make people uncomfortable is this beginning of the passage that says that that Jesus is coming soon with his reward being with him to repay everyone according to their work or bringing his recompense, as some translations say. So there, this notion of God as judge has fallen out of favor with many today. But it's interesting, Miroslav Volf in his wonderful book, Exclusion and Embrace, talks about how the non-judgmental God is the God of the privileged American suburb. And for those for whom history is unkind and tragic, that the there is hope that history will come out right and that actually someone, there is a judge that will mete out some sort of justice that is healing and redeeming. And in that same book, he talks about that the reason he doesn't think Christians should bear the sword is because he has comfort that God does. And it's some very challenging stuff in the end of that book, which I would recommend looking at. But in any event, you have this picture of Jesus as the judge and the one who will be the meaning of history the you know it's out the he's the alpha and omega the beginning and the end and also he's coming soon which is i guess one of the trickier parts of the passage the greek word here tachai could be translated either as quickly or soon now if we interpret it as soon we might think that it means that Christ will return in John's lifetime, in the hearer's lifetime, to make right their persecutions at the hand of the Roman Empire. Or, you know, you might, if, if we take soon more loosely and say, you know, time is different to God, we might say that, okay, Jesus soon is different than our conception of soon. But regardless of 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 which we choose, uh, it, it, it seems that, <laughs> well, it seems that we'd want to choose this, the latter half, the latter meaning, because it has not come, uh, Christ has not brought an end to history at, during the lives of those first generation of Christians. Another possibility, uh, you, again, as we said, we could translate tacky quickly, meaning that when Jesus come, comes, it will be suddenly and swiftly, and he will invade history in a way that confounds expectations and catches us by surprise. This is sort of, it should, should mitigate, it, it doesn't, but it should mitigate the tendency to construct charts and fix dates for the second coming and identify the Antichrist in history. Because it seems that, if anything, Jesus is saying it will be a surprise when he invades history. But it, you know, I think it's important as we look at this passage to imagine 
that God really could invade history soon. I mean, there's this great story about Karl Barth late in his life sitting at, 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 on Christmas Eve watching the snow by himself late at night out his window. And one of his grad students said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for Jesus. And this is, you know, in their own ways, some dispensationalists and people like Karl Barth have tried to remind people that if you lose sight of this eschatological dimension of the gospel, the church risks becoming a dead, slumbering, inert, moribund institution. Now, again, there's certain kind of eschatology that can be ruinous and, and not renew the church, but this idea that history belongs to God and that we should always be we should always be his, holding history lightly because it's in his hands, not ours. I mean, that I think is something that we ought to take from this text, certainly. And the, the, it's, there's a great invitation here given to those who've washed themselves in the lamb, in, in the, the lamb's blood, in the death of Christ. Whereas Adam, the first Adam, led humanity east of Eden. The second Adam and those wa- invites those who are immersed in his death, washed in his blood, to be partakers of the fruit of the tree of life and to enter the heavenly city by its gates. You think of Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans saying, as, as disobedience came in through one man, so righteousness comes through one. And the book ends with sweet, sweet words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It's very fitting that the Bible ends commending the grace of Jesus to all people. Hallelujah. That we all need it. When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Our last reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Here, after the his final, after the Last Supper and before walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays to the Father for his followers and those whom they will bring to Christ in the future. I want to read the first few verses of the passage in Dale Bruner's translation in his wonderful commentary on the Gospel of John. It goes as follows. I am not praying for these apostle disciples only, but also for those present and future disciples who are believing in me through their word, that they may all please be one. Just as you, Father, are locked into me, and as I am locked into you, that they too may be locked into us, so that the world out there may believe that you and no one else sent me and no one else. And the very glory you have given to me, I have given to them, so that they may be one as we are one. I locked into them, and you locked into me, so that they too may be perfected into one single community, so that the world out there may know that you and no one else sent me and no one else, and you have loved them as much as you have loved me. Father, please, I very much want that special group of people that you gave me to be with me where I am so that they can see the special glory you gave me because you love me before the foundation of the world. These are the final petition of petitions of what Dale 
Bruner calls the Lord's Lord's Prayer. He's praying for, he's offering his final prayers before the Passion. And this prayer for unity really stands out among them. And what's interesting is that the source of unity, which really comes out in the translation by Dale Bruner, is the way that God's people will be united is by being locked in, as it says, to the Father and the Son. And I guess implicitly the Spirit or through the Spirit, because the Spirit's mission and passion is to see the world united to God in Christ, the Father in through the Son. So here, the way for the church to be unified is not so much looking first to each other and looking at, at differences and, and, and trying to honor, hammer them all out on the horizontal level, but vertically, that as we seek to be in, in the interlockedness of the Father and Son, that we'll move more towards each other. I think that's sort of the idea here. It's really interesting. In 19, I guess, 99, uh, when in November, that when after the joint declaration on justification by faith put out by the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church, after that was issued, there was a, an editorial in the November 3rd, 1999 edition of the Wall Street Journal called By Grace Alone, with an accompanying picture of Pope John Paul II. In it, uh, it begins dramatically saying, exactly 482 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, leaders of the Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches met in Augsburg on Sunday to settle the dispute that formed the core of their schism and that led to the Protestant Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. At issue was the concept of justification, whether, as Lutherans and most Protestants believe, man finds salvation in faith alone, or, as Catholics have long emphasized, a life of good works is an integral part of the path. And the and towards the concluding conclusion of the editorial, we find these words. The Lutheran-Catholic Joint Declaration hardly paves the way for an immediate reunification of the churches. The world's nearly 1 billion Catholics and 82 million Lutherans still disagree over such issues as the papacy and the nature of the Eucharist. But the joint declaration, nevertheless, may be one of the most important ecumenical moments of our century. When two churches say they can finally see eye to eye on a dispute that shaped the history of Europe for nearly half the millennium, it's a big deal. And in an age when some churches feel compelled to market themselves with trendy irrelevancies, it's nice to see that others still care about the central tenet of Christian teaching, that sinners can be saved. And the editorial ends there. And hallelujah, sinners can be saved. And that is a truth that can unify the church, a church that is composed only of sinners, united to the Father in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. It was fun doing this solo episode. I probably won't do a ton of them, but I really enjoyed it. So thanks for listening, and until next time, friends, fare thee well.